They are amazing athletes with quick reflexes and heroic levels of strength and cardio, generating massive amounts of torque as they catapult through the narrowest of gaps at 50 miles per hour. Blink, and you'll miss them. That was amazing. Wow. That's how, that's how, that's how we should start every day for the rest of our lives, David, with that kind of vibe. Don't you think? That's like being in the, being in the bathroom and kind of looking in the mirror and go, I am the tiger. I am the tiger. I do that most mornings. I am the best. I am the best. Um, that was, the best. that was a thing I've only just stumbled across because I noticed, um, Greg Lamond has got his, has put his name to it. Um, that is the, that is the trailer for the team track, uh, world cycling league, which is, uh, a thing that you know a little bit about. I don't know anything about it. Um, but it sounds pretty pretty exciting. (laughs) If it is what I think it is, it goes back years to, uh, I think it was John Vandervelde. Um, Christian Vandervelde's dad, who is an Olympic track racer. Yep. And he kind of wanted to do something, kind of bring that revolution sort of style of track racing to the States and obviously the world. Um, And he's been battling away at it. I mean, because I know John has been in the grassroots for like four decades. They even had a velodrome in Chicago and stuff that he set up and different things. And, but I don't know if he's still involved and I don't even know if this is the same project, but it sounds similar. And the fact Greg Lamond may have put his name. Yeah. It, it does sound like it's still the same thing trying to push through, but aren't the UCI trying to do something similar at the moment as well? Well, there is a, trying to start a new league. Yeah, that may well be true. Cause as you say, revolution has disappeared, hasn't it? And, um, the Madison group has folded that was running the six day series quite successfully, it seems, but they got properly done by COVID, didn't they? So, you know, they had, they had quite a fragile business plan and COVID just completely unraveled it. So there is a, there's a definitely a gap in the market there, but it's, it's, it's interesting that no one's managed to, we'll get onto our theme tune and talking about road mm. racing in a second, but, um, <laughs> but no one's really managed to nail down a convincing track series have they in the modern era i mean don't no. let's not forget a hundred years ago it was mm. that was that was cycling to, to a great extent yeah but um but yeah i mean i think revolutions come closest hasn't it yeah, and i probably. guess it also comes down to the fact that so few countries have indoor velodromes and you've got certain countries like belgium and germany where they can they've still got the culture and they can bring in people like Gary Beckett to knock up a track in three days into a venue, <laughs> which still, still still just blows my mind. Yeah. If you go to Gary Beckett and look through his his feed, you'll sometimes find pictures of it from back in the day. But I think it's if we look at Italy, uh, which who won the team pursuit at the Olympics, they've only got one indoor velodrome in the whole country with a leaky roof. With a leaky roof, yeah. But actually, Gary. I should I mean, I should qualify what I just said because, of course, six day racing is incredibly alive and well in berlin in bremen mm. in copenhagen and of course in mm. in ghent um and, and probably i've forgotten a couple of other places so you know it's just a, it's just the idea of linking it into a series a cogent series but, that kind of hasn't really happened but going back to that the reason they they exist is because they're cultural events people aren't necessarily going for the the racing yeah they're going because it's been going on for a hundred years and it's yeah. just a, a a ritual of winter is to go to the sixth day and, and yeah. get smashed yeah. and hang out with your friends. Yeah. Um, so it's quite hard to instill that in, in new places when, because it's not about just setting up racing, it's about setting up the social event, which they were trying to do, the Madison group, weren't they? Yeah. Making it into it, making it into DJ, sort of a, DJ set uh, in the middle. It's quite, yeah. It was, lighting. Yeah. 
kind of but anyway whatever yeah let's move on yeah all right well um yeah yeah let's have our theme tune come on let's bring us right back to earth So, David, this is, you'll notice the um, the sousaphone, the old German umpa bit has actually, um, that's very good, has, has gone. So that's, um, we've gone back to, our, uh, it's so confusing at the moment with our different formats. But this, I think, is probably our final fandango. So we've gone back to pure flamenco. Um, so this is, this is a never strays fandango and probably the last one. For, for this Vuelta edition. Um, so we should probably focus on the Vuelta. But I should probably tell you, yeah. I should probably tell you, because we left our audience rather hanging about stage four of the Deutschland tour, which we never... Yeah, what did happen? I can't even remember. Um, I'll, I'll look it uh, up now. Uh, well, Niels... Oh, no, I do remember. So it was really quite a hard day, actually. There's a lot of climbing in it. And so, you know, the likes of Cavendish... No, no chance. He didn't make it to the finish line. And it was quite a small group that came into Nuremberg and to the circuit. And then they put, they, I think I told you that Niels Pollitt's biggest rival for the overall win was his teammate, Pascal Ackerman, who was going into mm. the stage was eight seconds down, which meant that had he won the stage and Pollitt not not finished in the top three, Ackerman would have taken the overall victory from Pollitt, courtesy of countback on bonus. No, courtesy straightforwardly of bonus seconds. He would have been, hmm. he would have won it by two seconds. Um, and the only way that Pollitt could have avoided that was by taking bonus seconds at the bonus spot, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, that does. And the bonus seconds were available. This Get this, this is like I've never seen this on a, on a race before. The bonus spot was placed two point eight kilometers from the finish line. <laughs> so um, that's wild. So Pollitt. So you got to make you you got to make your decision whether you're going for the win or the bonus because you can't do both. You can't do both. You can't do both. So Pollitt. Yeah. So Pollitt did the, the the sensible thing and darted out, nabbed himself second place, which at the bonus spot I can't remember who got first, um, which was two seconds, and that's all he needed. So Ackerman was basically boxed out there in terms of the overall win. And then he didn't even win the stage either because, uh, oh my God, who won the stage? Christoph did, right? Uh, Christoph won it. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, and second and uh, Luca Mozzato third. Luca Mozzato got third. Um, and that was that. So Pollitt, yeah, so it's very satisfactory really for Niels Pollitt. He won, he won the Deutschland Tour and continues to kind of add, mm. add, um, uh, you know, significant little stepping stones in his very, very convincing career. He's really come. He's really come to him, come into his own in 2021, hasn't he? He's full, full, and he's also got. Yeah. He's also got Paris Roubaix as a major target in a few weeks' time. Oh, that will be good. Well, as we sort of second to Gilles Bell, he was wasn't second he? to so Phil Gill. He's, yeah. he's not bad at that. Yeah, no. It's, it's sometimes you just got to break the breakthrough, get the monkey off your back, and it certainly seems that Pollitz has done that. Mm. It's um. Yeah, yeah it's all, great. especially for a German rider in it, Germany. That's cool. It was really cool. It was really cool. Um, it was horrible weather in Nuremberg. It was the worst of the of the four days of weather. I mean, it just was pouring with rain, which is a real shame. Um, and the following day, I went to Paris. I flew. Oh, yeah, how how was Paris? You sent me a nice photo of you working from a cafe. Oh, it was very it. um, Belle Epoque-esque. It. it was. It was brilliant. Yeah. It was. I jumped. I got so I got a train from Charles de Gaulle into the Gare du Nord. 
which was heaving. I have to say, it's really busy. And then I thought, I'm not getting an, I'm not, and then I had to get a metro across town because Pathé's headquarters were down by the, in the 13th arrondissement of the Place d'Italie. Which is a bit, a bit too far to walk, quite a long, a lot too far to walk actually. So I left my luggage, at, left luggage in the Gare du Nord. And then I thought, oh, why, look, instead of getting the metro, let me get a Vélib. Let me get a hire bike because Paris, nice. Paris kickstarted the whole hire bike thing, didn't it? You know, mm. long before Ken Livingston copied the idea and then Boris Johnson hijacked it. Um, uh, so I, th- I hadn't taken a Vélib for ages and I jumped on my bike and I set off without looking at a map. And I suddenly thought, oh, it's so good to be in Paris again. Because the last time I'd been there, David, was with you um, at the end of the, and Pete, at the end, and Matt, and everyone at the end of the 2019 mm. tour. And I've not been back since. Mm. And I'm damn sure you haven't been back since. And no. it's just a city that I'm so familiar with going to regularly throughout the year for one reason or another. And then always at the end of July. Um, that it, I just felt lovely to be back. And um, Mayor Anne Hidalgo has just done amazing things with revolutionising the way that the roads are used. So there are new bike lanes absolutely everywhere. Every single street, David, in Paris, in central Paris. And you know that for motorised traffic, there are a lot of one-way streets. Every Mm. single street in Paris is accessible in both directions by bike. So wherever you see a no-entry sign, it always has Mm -hmm. underneath Souf Vélo. So you can go down, you can go in either direction. So bikes have been given the freedom of Paris. They really have. That's incredible. And, and it's really made a difference. Huh. And, and people, so Paris was relatively empty, right? Because it, it was still just about August. So a lot of Parisians were out of town on holiday and no tourists had, had really come into Paris. And yet the streets were teeming with cyclists and people on scooters and things, absolutely outnumbering motorists 10 to 1 everywhere you looked. And these people weren't tourists or, or, or you know, these people were Parisians of all ages, all races, mm. all creeds. Um, there's been a real modal shift, a kind of complete paradigm shift in Paris, and it's down to the political will of one mayor, and it's um, deeply impressive. So I really enjoyed that. I that's that was amazing. Great. And then the no, sun came cool. out, and I crossed the River Seine over the, the Pont d'Ostalitz, and I headed south, and I had a very funny encounter with the people at Pathé who thought I was insane, and we had a conversation out in the street. They wouldn't let me into their offices. So I stood there trying to explain what the hell I was talking about to a woman who neither knew nor cared. So anyway, it's all with their legal team now and kind of whatever. But um, so that was quite funny. And then, as I say, a sat how, did you, how far did you get up the food chain there? You just dealt with a sort of receptionist or did you kind of go up? Yeah, I think she was a bit more. I think she, she'd probably she'd probably balk at being described as a receptionist, although she didn't quite describe who she was and what. But she clearly had a. She was. She clearly had a great interest in the path. That she, I think, she was a archivist at the Pathé collection. Oh wow! But but and yet okay. was not remotely interested in hearing about the 1923 Tour de France. <laughs> 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 uh, but I was very keen on telling her all about the night, and so we had this sort of uh, <laughs> this conversation that didn't really go anywhere. But it was a really good encounter, and and then I sat and, and did some writing at a cafe, and then whatever, and then I got, and then I had my first experience of post Brexit. Um, uh, immigration, or, uh, yeah, immigration crossing the border back into the UK from France at the Gare du Nord, and seeing oh, what was it like? Horrible. And uh, listen, I don't want to be political on this podcast because there may be people listening who, you know, for for good faith reasons, voted to leave the European Union. Um, and I, I believe that there are 
there are some arguments that hold water. And I do understand that people did that, that, that vote. That I didn't vote, obviously, to leave the European Union, but I do understand that there, there, there were good reasons to do it in some people's eyes. One thing that is not a good reason, I don't think, is stopping the freedom of movement from from Paris to London, let's face it. And on either side of me were French people who live in London and were simply trying to go home to jobs and their homes in London. There are something like 50,000 French people in London. And the way mm. that they were being questioned and treated by British customs, uh, you know, immigration officials was made me die inside. It was so embarrassing. Mm. And I, I, I actually, it was shameful. You know, so really? they literally, they present their passports at, at British border control and they're asked, what's the purpose of your visit? You know, hmm. you, 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 you work in the UK. Why do you, you know, like, and it's just that you're getting hmm. questioned where it used to be just a matter of course, you know, just put the passport on the thing and then off yeah. you go. And how is that progress? How's that progress? So there you go. That's yeah. that rant over. But I wanted to get it off my chest. Let's get, should we get back to bike racing yeah. or is there anything else to discuss? Let's get back. No, no, let's get back to base for bike racing. Right. Let's get back to the, uh, the volunteers. Actually, we should start with maybe the Paralympics. Well, that's overnight and news, isn't it? Sarah Story. Um, Sarah's 17 gold medals. 17 gold medals. 17 gold medals. Pretty mad. And, yeah. and um, she is, I mean, the, I, I think what is, so there's one thing to say about Sarah Story's achievements that probably needs saying that the Paralympic movement, which I studied quite a while ago, kind of when I was write, trying to write a book about the Paralympic movement, is young compared to the Olympic movement. That is to say, mm. um, there are there are sports within the Paralympic movement that are very well developed and quite kind of, there's a lot of strength and depth across the world. And there are sports where that is less obviously the case. And I think in some of Sarah's disciplines, that to be honest, that is the case a little bit, that the strength and depth probably isn't there, which is, you know, not mm. taking anything away from Sarah's achievements because she's phenomenal and she's also an amazing amazing woman and an amazing person who I've been very lucky to get to know and I think but I think the the biggest single kind of uh Im immense acknowledgement with what Sarah's done is the sheer longevity of her career you know yeah. how long she's been doing it and you know whilst also being an advocate um, in all sorts of other different ways, not just for disability sport, but recently um, in kind of active travel in Sheffield, whilst running a, a development cycling team for women in the UK, and whilst, um, you know, being a mother to two children at home, and this and that and the other, and to continue doing what she's doing. She's phenomenal. <laughs> she's absolutely yeah, incredible. She is. And I'll never forget. Yeah, 1992 was her, were her first Olympics, then, Barcelona. She was like 16 or something, wasn't she? Or... Yeah, fifteen. I think fifteen. It's yeah. just incredible. Yeah, and she. I don't. I think I'm right in saying she's not ever entered a Paralympic event at the at the at the Paralympics and not won it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's right. Yes, in sw cycling, perhaps in swimming, she did swimming before. Yes, that's right. So, so did she not in, win in swimming, all her swimming? <laughs> no, she. No, she <laughs> got silver and bronzes there. there occasionally as well. Let herself down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, let us off there. But uh, yeah, it's it's it's, it's amazing. And As you said, there's the longevity of that. And from what I gathered, just reading a report about this, um, the road race final, it was pouring with rain in Fuji on Mount Fuji, pouring with rain and quite cold. And there was a lot of descending to be done. And Sarah, because of her 
um, the disability it affects is it her left arm? I can't remember. You know, left, she, yeah. her left arm that she has to kind of you know strap her arm into the she bike handling is impaired, um, and that's why in road races you'll often see her. Um, when she's competing with able-bodied athletes, uh, not in the bunch. So she'll be deliberately off the front or out of the back slightly mm. because she finds handling the bike in the bunch quite quite difficult. She obviously had to overcome really difficult descending conditions to c- carry on sort of putting out the power um, that she needed to do what she always does and ride away from people. So it, it was obviously a really difficult race to win as well. So hats off to her. Hats off to her. And while we're, yeah. while we're dealing with women's racing, David? Just because uh, yep. I'm very conscious we didn't mention it last time at all while it was going on. Um, but in uh, the Netherlands, the race has come to an end that used to be known as the um, the Bowls Rental Tour or whatever it's called. And has now changed sponsor and it's the Simac Ladies Tour it's now called these days. And it was won outright by Chantal Vandenbroek Black, the former world champion for the all-conquering SD Works team. Um, but it was really nice to see... Uh, Mariana Voss win the last two stages back to back in sort of selective sprints. Um, so she keeps churning out the victories, Mariana, who's a pretty she's great. She's absolutely phenomenal, isn't she? It did occur to me with the she women's is. peloton that that I've been kind of. I think I was introduced to for the first time when I presented the first couple of editions for the television of the the women's tour in the UK. It did occur to me how. Um, uh, in opposition to the way it's going with the men's racing, the kind of evergreen riders in the women's peloton seem to go, you know, seem to be undiminished, and seems yeah. to, seems still to be kind of. But it's kind of it's been I think it's been known for a while, but it's been proven now that women they do actually get better with age regards endurance, and so cycling, well, in its road race form and in, in some of its other forms, it's it is an ultra endurance sport. So it does actually, it, the, and women are better than men as they, they get older. In the 40s, men have quite a sharp drop-off, and women tend to improve and get stronger. Uh, so uh, cycling is actually the perfect sport. If it, if you can keep your head together, because that's often the hardest thing, yep. then women can, can rely on actually probably hitting their peak in ultra-endurance in their mid-40s, which is pretty wow. amazing. Oh, yeah, wow. So It's um, happening. Voss has got a long, a long time left. Then, yeah, another ten years at the top. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Because the only, the only, Longo. I mean, the, yeah, Jenny Long. Oh my God! By the way, did you see that clip that was posted by David Gunwell's account? You know his account, don't you? No, was, yeah, yeah. I love his account. He's got a great account. So, did you see, did you not see that little TV show oh. clip? Um, it must have been from the Velo Club. From back oh, in the with day. Mark Maddio. You know, I didn't, I didn't click on it to watch. <gasps> what did he do? Was he terrible? Oh, he was so... It was terrible. I mean, he was ranting at Jenny oh, Longo. Yeah. This must have been 89, I guess, or one of the editions where the, the Tour de France Féminine was run. Yeah? Um, yeah. Uh, that Longo dominated. And uh, Madio was very young in this clip, but he was a French national champion, right? He's sitting there in a tricolore, I think. Mm. Um, and he was ranting at her about how... He was just dismissing women's bike racing out of hand, saying it's, it's doing nothing but harm to the sport, doing nothing to, but harm to the, the development of women's cycling because the riders look ridiculous. They've got no style. They've got no finesse. Their position on a bike is horrible. All, all this sort of thing. And Jenny Longo was just trying 
rationally to to sort of like put out his ridiculous fire and she he was sitting so close to her as well and then i mean he he went full chimp and he literally said um vous êtes moche uh meaning you're ugly wow you are ugly he said to her at which point the host whoever he was kind of intervened and everyone in the audience live audience behind him went oh no you can't say that but i mean He'd already kind of said said as much, and then he just literally stepped over the line and actually, to Jenny Longo, said, "You're an, you're ugly," like that. That's it, insane. It was a bizarre clip. Um, wow. I, I hope really I hope weird. if Mark Maddio watched that back now, he'd be deeply ashamed. Um, sure, you'd hope so. It was painful to wow. watch. Wow, that's that's Mark calling you now. <laughs> yeah. To have a rant. To have a, a rant. Well, unless he's moved to Manchester, it was a Manchester number, so. Uh, uh. I don't tend to answer my phone anymore because I don't recognise anyone's numbers. Anyway. Um, uh, okay, well, that's good. So, so that's that. the women's racing we've got done there. By the way, oh. you know, we started with chapter three of the test pilot programme. We got inundated. Did it's you? It's been amazing. That's yeah, very good. absolutely wonderful. And so much care and attention put into the replies. And Brilliant. We spent days just reading through them all. How many people are you gonna? How many people have you got to select from from to do this? I think we'll probably go just all of them, and (laughs) because and then and then actually select from there, kind of because when we've got test things, bring them in, create communities, and yeah, I think at the moment when you kind of read through it all, all of a sudden we expected a couple of dozen, and you got hundreds, and you think, okay, well. Maybe there's something here. So I think we're having to go a little bit back to the drawing board, but there's clearly a need. And so I think it's a, it's an amazing opportunity. And what, I tell you what, one of the most amazing things was, was um, the ages you had sort of 20s or late 40s, 50s. And you can tell, and this again, this is one of the, we know it, but but we don't acknowledge it is women have that huge kind of gap in their thirties where they're working the majority and have are mothers to, to families. And whereas men are all in their thirties going out and riding their bike and getting loads done, women tend to, they just don't have the time. Mm. And it's, it's just it kind of, it's quite emotional when you read through all these things. It's either young women who are just super into the sport and then it's just, it drops off a cliff for about 15 years. Yeah. And then there's late forties getting back into the sport or just started, got some freedom and, and it was a, it's, it's been a very fascinating learning experience and it's, it's, uh, it's not at all what I expected and yet it, it's so is what I should have expected. And yeah. I think it's, it's, it's going to be a really fascinating journey. I think really bringing it all together. Oh, that's great, so, isn't it? I, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can mm. make assumptions about other people's lives, but it, you actually need to listen, don't you? <laughs> and to be told yeah. told these things that I suppose when you learn them are kind of, when you hear them, you go mm. and the penny drops, you go, well, of course that's the case. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but yeah, yeah, you need to step outside yourself. Yeah, and and it makes kind of total sense now because I've been adamant I want to put chapter three women as almost a separate segment within chapter three because it is different. And this is verifying that, that actually it has to have its own sort of universe. And because it is incomparable to to the men's sort of cycling experience. And it's a different community. There's different expectations. There's different needs. And there's a different potential community there. And I actually think it's going to benefit us to help us improve the, the men's side of, of chapter three and the offering. Because it's, it's just so different. And it's... um. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. It's kind of the enjoyable bit about 
running this, having a business and a company and a brand like this, because you actually get really deep into the sport and learn things you wouldn't otherwise. So yeah, so that's been interesting. Um, Tour de Yorkshire, we've got a free weekend. Yeah, so is it, in April, it's, it's definitely on. No, it's definitely going to be off. So uh, again, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't think it's coming back. It'd be perfect. I don't think it's coming back. Perfectly honest then. with you, if it's that's going to be three years, there's no yeah. way it's coming back. I, I agree. I agree. I, I was, as, as you know, I was working with ASO out in, um, in Germany. And from time to time, we talked about um, the, the Yorkshire tour. Bernard, who does the um, technical side that, you know, looks after the RF and the helicopters, and was always in Yorkshire on site with us. He was quite gloomy about it. He'd already heard m- mood music coming out of ASO that it, it, the signs were not good. Now, from what I understand, you know, mm. from what I understand, a couple of the um, local authorities in Yorkshire, which were which were going to have to put up some money. I think Beedale being one of them, which was going to host the the first finish. Um, mm. uh, I think they were still on board, but several of the local authorities weren't. And then it kind of like yeah. snowballed a bit. And it was quite interesting that I heard some quotes from James Mason, who's taken over from Gary Verity as the chief mm. executive of Welcome to Yorkshire and had to, well, basically had to clear up Verity's mess to some extent in, in that organisation, which was kind of helped. And then COVID came along. But I heard him talking on the radio yesterday as I was uh, as I was doing a, a few sort of radio shows in Yorkshire Um he was he was also talking it was quite interesting just reading between the lines of what he said he was trying to shift a little bit of the responsibility for it not happening onto aso in the sense Mm. that he said you know we're dealing with our partners are a private enterprise a commercial enterprise who are answerable to their shareholders and it is behoven upon them to turn a profit and um Mm. they uh their demands had gone up so <laughs> yeah, he was kind. He was kind of shifting a little bit of the blame onto ASO, asking for too much money. Actually, um, so that yeah. the, the truth is probably a bit of everything, you know. But yeah, and I think it was also unfortunately just before COVID, was a perfect st- storm with Gary Verity kind of being booted out, and then sadly the the climatic train crash, which was Harrogate World Championships, Completely. which I think just left such a bad taste. In, yeah. in everybody's mouth because like it was just it was a tragedy in many ways yeah a week of weather it was it so it was it. so unfortunate and it completely out of their control yeah. and it, imagine if it had been a sunny warm hot week it would have been ah. it would have changed everything it would have been glorious yeah. it would have, I honestly think it would have changed everything I think we'd yeah. have a tour of Yorkshire still on I think you um, might be right because yeah. Harrogate Council instead of kind of complaining about the way the you know the, the, the stray the common had been left mm. And it all got rather bitter the aftermath of that. They would have been celebrating what would have been a great event. And then other council leaders would have taken the lead from them and it would have been a yeah. positive moment. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. It's a real shame. I mean, as I was saying on the radio to a couple of different stations yesterday, yes, it's an expensive venture. And yes, there's no obvious, you know, kind of immediate and clearly evidenced return on your investment. But, but you tell me how now it's gone, right? You tell me what other events you can you can host as a county, and Yorkshire is such a huge and varied and glorious county, mm. that would necessitate or involve four consecutive days of five hours a day of un, of continuous live television coverage across the world, showcasing your county every year, yeah. every year. Mm. 
Um, you tell me where else. Yeah, you, you tell me where else you're going to get that, and you tell me that's not worth the investment. I mean, just buying yeah. that airtime and advertising yourselves across the world to that size of audience for that long every year. You tell me that's not worth the investment. I just don't believe it. I say it is worth the investment, Ned. Was that inspirational? I think. That was do you know what I do think, though? I think it. I think you're right. I agree with you. I think it's gone. I think the Tour de Yorkshire is gone. But I think there's enough. Cycling has kind of seeded itself in Yorkshire since 2014 to a sufficient extent that in the medium term, in maybe two or three, four years, something will come back to take its place. One day race. A one day race. One day race. Yeah, that's all you need. It's like the Leeds Classic. The Leeds Classic. It's like get a big, amazing one-day race. But a world tour. A, a world cyclist. tour one-day race. World tour, a world tour one-day race. And, you know, it would be a course that Dan Martin would even like with crowds. It wouldn't be <laughs> no, a... He'd find a way of... He'd find something to complain about. <laughs> the transfer. I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the future. That's realistic. Then you could do like a... a a weekend festival, a Cyclo Sportif from the Saturday, yeah. the bike race on the Sunday. Yeah. You could get everyone up there. You could say everyone would fly in. You get the crowds out, and and if it one day it doesn't matter if it rains, it makes it almost better. Yeah, you know. So yeah, one day I agree. Future, I agree. But. And the other thing, the other kind of consequence of the Tour de Yorkshire going is that um, the Tour of Britain can now come back to Yorkshire because <laughs> they've been banned. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I was talking because I, you know, I've I've worked on both races and know both organisations very well. Uh, and I remember a few years ago talking to um, Sweet Spot, who run the Tour of Britain, and they were they had uh, probably breaking a confidence here, but I, I'll tell you anyway. Um, they uh, <laughs> they had they were on the brink of taking. I can't remember which edition of their race it was. I'm going to say 2018 or 2019. 2019, I think they they were on the brink of signing a contract with Hull, with the city of Hull, which is obviously in Yorkshire, um, to take to to host either a finish or a start. I think a finish of the Tour of Britain, take it through the county, and Hull uh, suddenly at the last minute pulled out because uh, Gary Verity, when he was still at charge of Welcome to Yorkshire, got wind of the fact that they were doing a deal with the Tour of Britain and came down on them like a ton of bricks and threatened this, that, and the other. And they got cold feet and pulled out. So it was it was Welcome to Yorkshire under the Gary Verity regime that banned the Tour of Britain from coming through. And there was a lot of bad feeling between the two organisations as a result. Yeah. But I mean, the Tour of Britain can now come back to Yorkshire and I'm sure it will next year. I'm sure they'll make a point of it. In fact, oh, it, was, God, yeah. in fact it wouldn't surprise me if the whole of the Tour of Britain was within Yorkshire next year. Eight that days of it. That'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they could do it as well. A stroke of genius. Yeah. 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 Um, um, so this is a... Ned, we should probably have... Yeah, this... Because... Yeah, go on. Go on. All right. Well, I was just saying this, this, this is a never strays Fandango and I don't think we've mentioned Spain once. <laughs> no, and I think before we do that, because I know yeah. Harry from the Road Book and, and Ross from Chapter 3 have been putting together this amazing prize yes. for our listeners. When does that go live? Um, uh, I think it's live. I think you can go to the Road Book. So huh. why don't we have an interlude and let Ross explain? Yep. And then because then there's a page set up on the Road Book for people to go and sign up. And it's, there's some pretty amazing stuff there. Brilliant. So over to you, Ross. Never Far listener, it's Ross here from Chapter 3. I've briefly hijacked the podcast to tell you about a pretty incredible grand prize giveaway we have going on as of right now. Along with some of our favourite cycling brands, we've teamed up to get a prize together worth well over £1,000. Who are those others? Well, let's start with Lacquer. Lacquer are here to make sure you're covered every time you go for a ride. 
Their collective cover is made especially for cyclists, for life on and off your bike. Our grand prize winner will receive £200 worth of their unbeatable coverage. Black has got your back. Claims are handled by experts and usually agree within a day. I can say personally, having used them for three years now, they're great. 10 out of 10, would insure again. They've ditched annual contracts locking you in. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can, anytime. Next up, Ruler. What can I say about Ruler that you don't already know? Loads, because otherwise I'd be pretty terrible at ad reads. If you're looking for world-class stories, mouth-watering photography and the hottest new releases covered in expert style, it's the magazine for you. And they're offering two free tickets to Ruler Live this November in London, celebrating the very best of cycling. Finally, Vermouteria, one of our favourite spots in central London, celebrating all there is to love about continental food and drink. They absolutely love cycling too, so expect plenty of memorabilia as you enjoy their expertly crafted menu. Our winner will get a £200 voucher to spend on dinner for four people. Add to that a lifetime subscription to the Cycling Almanac Red Edition, yes, lifetime, which according to current census data is on average nearly 80 years, and a whole new set of Chapter 3 Most Days kit, and you have yourself one hell of a prize. How do you register? Just head to theroadbook.co.uk forward slash NSF and sign up to our newsletters. That's theroadbook.co.uk forward slash NSF. We've stuck the link in the episode description too. Back to the show. All right. Well, well, that sounds um, really good. Really worth. I mean, you know, it's a shot yeah, to nothing. Really My good. God, we're giving stuff away. We're like, oh, by the way, bad news. That's bad news about Melinda Apples, isn't it? Getting involved with the mountain biking. <laughs> oh, I was gutted when I saw that. It doesn't it's, bode it's well almost for us. like we've inspired Melinda Apples to get into cycling. Somebody right. put it on Twitter, I think, and there's they're like they got huge inflatable <laughs> apples at a mountain bike race. <laughs> I mean, that that budget alone for that apple could have supported our pod for a while. What that one inflatable apple? That one inflatable apple. Uh, mate, a year's been, salary uh, for uh, both uh, you and me. Like we could have kept that could have kept could have kept this podcast going for a year. That was, like, that was like a kick in kick in the face when I saw that inflatable apple. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, uh, talking about apples, uh, oranges, rog, oranges. Like nice. the segue. Yeah, that's very good. Rog that's very good. That's very good because we're talking about um, this is going back to our gladiatorial yeah. kind of um, yeah. little pastiche we put together, yeah. and the fact that Roglic was literally well, you sent me messages during the race yesterday saying. Roglic is peeling oranges. Peeling oranges, and um, <laughs> and then I read the report afterwards. He was quite impressive, wasn't he? He well, I didn't see all of the race. Did you see any of it? No, I saw this I bit. I mean, a long way out was it sixty kilometers or something? Bernal and Roglic were off the front of the race, and Bernal. Yeah, it was six sixty k's to go. That Bernal went. Wow. So and Roglic yeah. just got on his wheel and went with him, and it was really interesting to see. I mean, fair play to Ineos and Egan Bernal. You know, he they attacked the race. They did what they. You know, it was a throw mm. of the dice. So what else are you supposed to do? Mm. Trevi's up against Primoz Roglic, isn't he? So it was pouring with rain in Spain yesterday. In Asturias, right? That's where they are, I think. That's Asturias, Lagos de Cobadonga, yeah. yeah. Cor- that famous climb at the end. And, um, mm. and, but it's so interesting seeing Bernal and Roglic on a bike and how different they are. You know, Egan, yeah. his position on a bike is actually classical isn't it he reminds me of Mm. he reminds me of kind of you know 1960s cartoons of what a cyclist should look like he's got this supple kind of um and he's quite pivoted forward isn't he yeah looks looks old-fashioned in a funny way yeah he does looks old-fashioned and And he's got quite a big gear as well turns turns a big gear 
And he looks like yeah. he's really, even when he's going well, he looks like he's not. He, he looks like he's about to burst yeah, into tears. You know, he's a classicist, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah and, he is. And Roglic is just different. So Roglic is just sitting on his wheel at the phase of racing I saw. Hadn't begun to work with him. I think later on they did kind of work together, mm. didn't they, for mutual advantage. Yeah. Um, but Roglic has got this, he sits slightly upright, doesn't he? And mm. to, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is just my impression, David, but he's slightly upright for a GC rider, I think, and, and slightly kind of forward on his saddle a little bit. And quite yeah. the whole impression is quite squat. Yeah, and and then and then and then you add in the the orange peeling face, uh, absolutely mm. impassive and in total control, and um, and I just thought that was ominous for Benal. So, at what point did, at what point did Roglic attack him? Do you know? On that, was it on the uh, on Lagos to Cobadonga? Yeah, I think he just rode away from on Lagos to Cobadonga. I can tell you. Let me just. Uh... No, I can't tell you. Okay. Somewhere on the climb. But then... Look, but he just rode away from them. And looking at the results. So, so here he goes. I just, uh, here he goes. This is a classic Roglic. When they got to Kobodonga. Oh, here you go. Roglic didn't even glance over his shoulder when his pacemaking dropped Bernal with 7.6 kilometres to go. And then he said, I didn't decide it. I just tried to ride up the climb as fast as possible. <laughs> at that point, at that point, Egan didn't follow anymore. So I just went then alone. <laughs> There you go. It's a bike racing one hundred and one. It's a simple game when you're Primoz Roglic. But I mean, looking at the results, Sepp Kuss finished second, right? And Henrik Mass was third. And so where did uh, Lopez, Miguel, Miguel Lopez, Lopez, Lopez third. third, yeah? And then Adam Yates fourth, Jack Haig fifth, Henrik Mass sixth, Bernal held on for seventh, and Gino Mada. And then, um, then at best, then it was another minute back to Monkeys, and then it was just ones and ones. Yeah. It's just individual riders after that. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of front group was. So that just goes to show what Roglic kind of the difference he made, and and I think even Bernal was fetting Roglic's performance yeah. because Roglic didn't need to do that. He didn't need to take the risk, and I think Bernal was quoted as saying that Roglic was brave because Bernal has nothing to lose. It was just a throw of the dice, go out there, and then to have the the kind of the favourite decide to go sixty k's to go in a move yeah. that was unnecessary. It was brave. It was just going out there to have fun and race with the, a, a Tour de France winner, another champion of his caliber. And um, so that that was pretty cool. And I think the Vuelta needed it because it's getting quite a, a bit of flack for being quite a, f- I say flat, not topographically, but flat uh, kind of emotionally yeah. uh, as a race yeah. so far. So I think it needed a day like yesterday. Yeah. it was. I mean, I suppose bravery is absolutely right when you consider that Roglic has crashed twice in recent stages mm-hmm. before the rest day. And then those were perfect conditions to crash again yesterday. And indeed, the red jersey crashed. Odd Christian Eichen, because he obviously conceded the red jersey, handsomely <laughs> handed it over yeah. with spades um, uh, yesterday. But I, I was watching GCN Eurosports and um, hats off to Dan Lloyd, who, who, who did, I mean, David, I think from time to time, we all do it. And... Uh, uh, but there's nothing you can do about it. But, but I think we've we've had incidents like this in the past, but just maybe not as glaring. Um, he was literally just saying, almost word for word, um, he was respect to the red jersey of odd Christian Eiking. He said, who has just ridden absolutely everything to complete perfection. He has not made a single mistake in this welter cut and he's on his ass. <laughs> it was brilliant. Ah. 
<laughs> it was fantastic timing. It was like he'd scripted it. It was, it was uh, a fraction brilliant. of a second late. It cuts to the red jersey and he's sliding over the tarmac with his shorts getting all ripped up and everything. And uh, so he crashed. But uh, and Lloydie, Lloydie coped uh, with that absolutely brilliantly. So That's awesome. And t- today's an absolute horror stage at the Vuelta, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, Roglic is going to... It's- Oh, it's a new claim, isn't it? Yeah, it's the other side of the Angliru or something. Oh, awesome. It's the same, yeah. Yeah, so Alto del Gamontiru. Yeah, I'm glad oh, you... Oh, that looks horrific. The stage ending climb is, I'm quoting here from, um, I should probably credit them, Cycling Tips. It's... Cycling Tips um, a preview. The stage ending climb is 14.6 kilometres long with an average of 9.8%, but most of the climb is uh. over 10%. Yeah, it's black. I have to turn that on. Black slopes all the all the way. So Roglic will crush it, crush the life out of it. it. Well, I guess that's what's mad as well. I'm going kind of yesterday. That's kind of guess that taps a bit further into what Bernal was saying about being brave. Because if today is essentially kind of the queen stage, and he decides to go on a 60k romp yesterday yeah. with Bernal, yeah. it's like he really is confident. Yeah. You're right, he's going to crush it. It could be. Times. It could be. I mean, you'd have to. We'd have to go back and do a bit of research. But I can't, I'm struggling to think. You know, when we get to the finish line on Sunday, it, it, this could be the biggest winning margin in a Grand Tour for a long time, potentially. Possibly. Well, it's only old Tade this year, the Tour, with his five plus minutes. Yeah, but I think Roglic will have much more than that. Is there a time trial still? Yeah. Final stage is a 30 kilometer time trial. So he's got two and he's got two and a half. He's got minutes two and a half minutes now. You take you double that up again, possibly today. Could be, could be pretty big. Could be pretty big. Could be pretty big. Yeah. Could be pretty big. Oh, well, well done. All right. Well done, Primoz. And um, I've got loads about to say it, about. It, I've got loads to oh. tell you about. Yeah, go on. Uh, what about Remco? Yeah, he's not winning. What happened? Here, stage one of the Benelux Tour, which is the Eneco Tour. Isn't it? Mm. I think it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, um, it is. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> stage one, he uh, he was swiped by uh, Alperson Fenix's Gianni Fermesh, or certainly that was his accusation. And Fermesh uh, broke a couple of his spokes. So he needed a wheel change. And he's at the back mm. and the wheel change came from neutral service and he's running disc brakes. And it was like me trying to change uh, Remco mm. Evenepoel's wheel. And it took a long time and he got, he got all chimpy and cross and he lost mm. over a minute and uh, mm. had to chase back on and then had a pop at Gianni Fermersh and was furious with the whole situation. Day two mm. was an 11 kilometer time trial and everyone thought, well, Remco, angry Remco is going to take as much time back as he possibly can and put himself back in the frame. But actually he finished nowhere and lost a lot of time and he's sick. He's not well. So he's having a rough old Eneco tour, is is your boy, so far, David? I'd say they need to pull him out immediately. Pull him out? Pull him out. Pull, pull him, out. him out immediately if he's sick. Yeah, well... Come on. Uh, that would make sense, yeah, because he's got big, like we were discussing yeah. last time, he's got big targets, hasn't he? Yeah. Left. Jeez. Oh, um, okay. And then... We'll give Patrick a call after. I just want to say, so we're going to pod again at some point on Saturday to preview the Tour of Britain. But yes. um, but it might be worth just saying we have settled on a title uh, for mm. the, the the strand. Um, I'm tempted to just. I, I think I might say that it's not going to be what it's not going to be. But I think I'm not going to tell you until Saturday what it is going to be. All right. 
That's that seems like a good policy. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's not going to be never strays Arthur, because um, mm. I slipped up really in the whole Arthur thing, and I, I I got taken to task really by by people. I I I thought he was I don't know, but anyway, I lost faith in it. So we've got a, we've gone with a different title instead. But all will be revealed on Saturday, and then I've. I'm deep into research. So as soon as I finish this pod, I've got to carry on doing my prep for the tour of Britain um, and, and fielding messages from Pete Kenyuk, who's got a couple of riders in the race who he's coaching. Oh, nice. And so he's just on, into my ear the whole time saying, mention him, mention him, mention me, mention me and mention him and then mention mm. me. So I've got to mention Pete Kenyuk <laughs> a lot in the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. Why is he not doing it? So you got Captain Blythe. I got, yeah, Blythe I got Adam Blythe in the David Miller role alongside. Nice. I'm looking forward to working nice. with Blythe, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's good, Adam. Captain Blythe. Yeah, yeah. why do you call him Captain? Because uh, I used to always call him that in the peloton because it's um, it's Captain... Uh, what's the the book, the film with the ship? Captain My Captain. Ship. No. And no, that's, that's a poem. That's the Dead Poets it's, Society, isn't it? By Captain by by this, I can't remember the name of the book. It's, I'm, basically, there's a revolt on the ship, and he's the evil cat. He's the captain that gets thrown off the ship and survives somehow in his dinghy. And there's a very <laughs> old, famous film about it. I'll, I'll find it. I've so totally left my mind now. But in the peloton, like years ago, I said, "Captain, Captain Blythe," <laughs> and it's not because it sounds it sounds like Blythe, but it's actually by Booth, or so I can't remember. But so that's why it's called the Captain because I just used to always call him Captain Blythe, you, like he was the, the captain on the ship. Are you the only person who yeah. calls him Captain? Is that like now everyone calls him Captain? Everyone calls him yeah. Captain. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. so okay. I, I forced I forced that one on him. See, that was a classic. Going back to our nickname, yeah, yeah, kind of the theory of nicknames. Yeah, yeah. I came up with it and then just pummeled it for years <laughs> until it became something. But it's a really nice yeah. one. That's not an offensive. That's it's cool. I'd like to be. No, called. I think it's a great. And that's what I mean. It's, it's what has a captain because he's just like the captain, isn't he? He's is a bit. Of a he captain. just kind of strolls around, yeah, like on the on the deck, just strutting his stuff with his kind of his pomp. And yeah, you're like a you're like a lieutenant, I think. Yeah. You're, you're like Lieutenant yeah, Miller? Just kind of getting it done. Yeah. Get, uh, Lieutenant Miller, um, yes. First officer. Your first officer. First officer. <laughs> yeah. I'm private bolting, <laughs> rattling around, ferreting around, doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ferreting around. Ferreting around. Uh, brilliant. Uh, I can tell we've run out of things okay. to say. And this is a really long pod. We should probably yeah. stop talking. Um, I've got to edit it yeah, and then do stop. some actual work. Did you have something else you wanted to put in there? Like somebody had sent something in? Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we could close on this, actually. It was, um, uh, yeah. uh, it was, it was me being put right about, um, about uh, King, King Arthur. And I'm just trying to... Uh, we had this little audio contribution from... Oh, God. Professor Dumkopf. Well, yeah, I think it's a pseudonym, though. I don't think he's really called Professor Dumkopf. Um well, let's just keep it. I like oh, it. No, yeah, well, actually, just checking the email that was sent to H-I... 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 W-T-Y-J at gmail.com. Actually, yes, his email his email name is Professor Dumkopf. So I don't know how else to call him. So it's, hi, Ned and David. Hope you're both well. Professor Dumkopf of the University of Floating Facts here. Um, 
you two were having a little discussion about re- renaming your podcast to celebrate the tour of Britain. Ned felt it was too English and David seemed somewhat ambivalent, confident in his Scottish roots. Well, the University of Floating Facts is here to assist and I've recorded this little tutorial to enlighten on the universal nature of the Arthurian legends. Uh, please inform me if you have any ex- ac- issues accessing the file. My very best wishes, Professor Dumkopf. Well, um, we'll, we'll close with this uh, contribution from the anonymous but uh, rather gifted Professor Dumkopf. Hello, Ned and David. Professor Dumkov of the University of Floating Facts here. A couple of weeks ago, you two were having a little badinage about the naming of your wonderful podcast to celebrate the tour of Britain. Ned suggested Never Strays Arthur. However, he felt that this may alienate the non-Anglo listeners as they may not have a connection to it. Well, the University of Floating Facts is here to assist. The Arthurian legends were actually developed from Welsh myths. Indeed, the name Arthur is a Welsh version of the Roman name Artorius. Arth meaning bear and gwer meaning man. Bear man. I'm not sure if that means that he is naked or a bear. Indeed, it can be witnessed by the Welsh names in the tales. Uther Pendragon, Morgan, Sir Garad Thomas, Knight of the Slippy Wheel. Of course, there are many connections to Scotland. And academics have suggested that Arthur was from southern Scotland. Indeed, one only has to visit Scotland's capital to see the visual representation. There, in the heart of the city, is the remnants of a massive volcanic eruption named Arthur's Seat. Many historians have hypothesised that this is indeed the site of Camelot. Well, that's all from the University of Floating Facts, and if you actually meant King Alfred, well, there's absolutely no connection to Wales or Scotland at all. <laughs> 